So this morning we're finishing this two-week sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to begin this morning by reading selected verses from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to begin with verses 1 through 4 and conclude then with verses 11 through 14. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I know there are, there are probably many of you here who've heard this from me before, but I really wanted to start this morning with a little bit of my own background because I think it really does impact why I believe so strongly that this two-week series we're doing on the book of Hebrews, why I really think it's so important. So I'd gone to church pretty much for my entire life, I would say except for a maybe six or seven-year period in college and uh, early as a young adult when, to be honest, it just wasn't that much of a priority for me at that point in my life, even though I'd gone to church for a long time. But I started going to church again after getting married. And then about 20 years ago, after having children, when my, my daughters were, I think, about 8 and 11 years old, I decided to enroll in this Bible study called Disciple, this year-long Bible study. Well, like I said, I'd been going to church for my whole life. I, I thought I knew the Bible inside out, but it was in this year-long, in-depth study of both the Old Testament and then the New Testament that for the first time, really for the very first time, I actually grasped the fact that the Bible wasn't just this random collection of stories with morals, with morality tales involved in them, but it was actually one coherent narrative, one story from beginning to end about God's relationship with us and that had some very basic things to say about who God is and who we are as human beings in relationship to God. And what really struck me, what really struck me, and again, I said, I've been going to church my whole life, was coming to understand these themes and beliefs that are taught and that are expressed through these stories in the Old Testament are what underlie everything that the New Testament has to say about what all is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And when I was in that class, I, I was really already coming to that kind of realization of this coherent nature of the whole story towards the end of the class when we reached this study of the book of Hebrews. In that class, it was just one week. But Hebrews was a book, even though I was raised in the church, I really had never spent that much time in. I hadn't spent a lot of time reading it or, or trying to understand it before then. And suddenly, in that class, suddenly, for the first time, right there, written down and explained in an actual book of the Bible, 
was what I had sort of started to be kind of grasping at that point in this class. And reading the book of Hebrews, really for me, it was just kind of like, poof. It was like my head kind of exploded. Because it all suddenly clicked. It all made sense for me in a way it really hadn't ever done before. But honestly, it had taken that entire year of Bible study, and especially, I would say, even those 17 weeks that we spent studying the Old Testament for me to really get there. And that's really a huge part of why you hear me all the time up here when I'm up here being such an advocate of Bible study if you really, truly want to grow in your faith. It's the bottom line, is to understand and study the Bible. And it's probably also why whenever I preach in these two sermons, in particular, might feel a little bit more like Sunday school. It might feel a little bit more like teaching time than what we always get, in, or what we typically get, I should say, in a sermon or with preaching. But I think the message on Sunday morning can be a little bit of both. So last week, last week I talked about Hebrews, this whole proposition in Hebrews that the religious system we see in the Old Testament wasn't God's final plan. Right? We talked about this last week. It was kind of a physical shadow projection, the blueprints of a spiritual reality that was only fully revealed with the coming of Christ. And last week, primarily, we talked about how the Old Testament priesthood was described as a shadow, a shadow of the perfect priest who was going to come, Jesus. So the focus last week was on our need for a priest, our need for someone to be a mediator between us and God because of our sin because of our sin that separates us from God and how Jesus is able to fill this role of priest perfectly because as a human being, he fully understands our temptation to sin. But as the divine son of God, he was without sin. So he's able to actually enter into God's presence and stand in that gap between us and God. But this week, this week, we don't want to focus on the office of the priesthood itself but rather on just what it is that the priests actually do in their role as a mediator between humans and God. And what we see in the Old Testament is that the primary activity of the priests is to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people so that the people can receive forgiveness of their sin, so that the sin that separates them from God can be done away with and they can be brought closer to God. Now, this whole activity occupies the entire central part of religious Jewish life in Jesus' day is the core of what it means to be a Jew, to bring sacrifices to the temple. And this is based on several huge beliefs that underlie this entire system and actually underlie the Christian faith as well. And the first is what we talked about at length last week, this belief that human sin separates us from God. God is holy, and we're not, so we can't stand in God's presence on our own unmediated. Someone needs to be there to mediate that presence for us. But a second belief, a second belief that was very deeply held was that life separated from God was akin to death. Life separated from God was akin to death. A wholeness of life, a shalom in their words, shalom could only be found in nearness to God. So what that meant was that the sin that separates us from God, that makes us unable to be in God's presence, 
also makes us unable to experience this wholeness of life, this shalom that they desired so much and that God desired for them. Well, and a third thing they believed was that this lack of wholeness, this lack of life in the extreme was exactly the same thing as death. Exactly the same thing as death. Physical death, they believed, is the natural culmination, the unavoidable culmination of estrangement from God. Because God is the source. God is the fountain of all life. So being apart from that leads unavoidably to death. Clearly, very clearly in their worldview, any sin that separates us from God ultimately culminates in death. It was very straightforward. If you sin, you'll be separated from God and you will die. Now in later New Testament language, but still based on Judaism, is a verse from Paul that you may be more familiar with, where Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. Okay, it's not that it's a punishment, it's that it's the natural culmination of life separated from the fountain of life. And fourth, the fourth thing they believed, and it's so fundamental, it's so important, through the laws that God has given, had given to Moses, God had let them know that as an act of grace, as an act of mercy, because God wants to be with them, wants to be in their presence, God says, I'll accept a substitute. I will accept a substitute who will bear the wages of sin on your behalf. Because God wanted them to live, because God wanted them to have this kind of life he had given them in the first place. He wanted them to live in nearness to him. God permitted an animal to suffer the consequences of their sin instead. An animal could be sacrificed, an animal could bear the death on behalf of the human sinner in this kind of divine exchange of an animal's death for a human's life. And all of this gets wrapped up for the writer of Hebrews in this emphatic statement that he says several times, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now I know that sometimes, because I've taught the Old Testament enough times to know, sometimes when we study the Old Testament, we hear about these animal sacrifices, we're horrified at what our 21st century sensibilities see as just the senseless slaughter of animals. But what we have to understand is that the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament people themselves who were part of this system, they understood exactly, exactly what was happening here. And they took these animal sacrifices very, very seriously. So when they brought an animal to be sacrificed for sin, they would literally, they would lay their hands on the head of this animal and they would say a prayer that in essence was, this should be me. This should be me. And they came away 
from that sacrifice with a crystal clear understanding that their sins had been forgiven, but also that their forgiveness had come at a price, a steep price, the price of the animal's life. Now, I think sometimes, too, this is a point that we might be tempted to ask, why? I mean, why? Why can't God just forgive, right? I mean, why does a substitution have to be made? Why does anybody, human or animal, why does anybody have to die just because someone sins? Well, the answer is that God's justice, God's justice demands it. Think about it, right? I mean, if I were to kill someone, if I were to kill someone and God or even our secular court system just said, you know what, Greg, you made a mistake. It's okay. Don't do it again. You're forgiven. Then my forgiveness would come at the cost of justice for my victim's family and friends. Folks, forgiveness always has a cost, always. And God's demand for justice will not allow for that cost to be justice for the people who've been harmed by my sin. If forgiveness doesn't have a cost, there's absolutely no incentive for the wrongdoer to change either. I can continue to sin, I can continue to do all kinds of horrible things, knowing that I just asked God to forgive me, go about my life knowing I don't face any real ramifications for my sin. God will just forgive me because God loves me. Hallelujah. I can get away with anything and know that I'll be forgiven. But you know, this is what theologians call cheap grace cheap grace. It's belief in a grace of God that has no cost, belief in a grace that's all about God's love but completely ignores God's demand for justice. The priests, the people of the Old Testament times, they understood that grace has a cost. And it was vividly, vividly put on display at each and every animal sacrifice. They couldn't escape it. But here's the problem this Old Testament system had, though. They found it had no actual power to change people. They just kept having to re-perform the sacrifices year after year to make amends for the new sins they had committed. It's the problem with the system that the writer of Hebrews addressed in the scripture I read at the beginning, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. See, this system 
It couldn't save them from sin. They understood God's forgiveness through it, but it really just served to emphasize again and again God's holiness and our sin. But what if? What if the sacrifice itself was perfect? And what if it could stand before God eternally? What if instead of an imperfect human priest offering the blood of imperfect animals, what if a perfect priest offered his own perfect blood? And what if this perfect priest didn't just present this sacrifice in some man-made building, some man-made temple that's just a shadow of where God really resides? What if this perfect priest entered into God's actual presence in heaven to present it. Well, that's exactly what Jesus, as our high priest, does for us. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God. See, Jesus, Jesus isn't corralled like some bull or, or goat and forced to die on our behalf. No, Jesus offered himself willingly to provide perfect eternal satisfaction for all sin. Jesus offered himself willingly to bear the cost of our forgiveness. So folks, hear this, right? Anytime, anytime we as Christians proclaim God's forgiveness, anytime we as Christians call upon God to forgive us, it is the renewal of our claim that we trust that the sacrifice of our high priest Jesus, the sacrifice that Jesus presents to God in heaven, covers the cost of our sin. Every time we as Christians proclaim or call upon God's forgiveness, it is because the blood of Jesus Christ is being offered right now on our behalf by our high priest Jesus. Hebrews 9, 22 to 28 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies, this is the old system, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these animal, these animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. 
nor did he enter heaven again to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not even his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, that's done, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So that's heavy stuff. But how do we, how do we live? How do we live with this knowledge? How do we live into our future with this kind of knowledge? How do we choose to live our lives knowing that God's forgiveness comes with a price? For one thing, I believe we enter into worship, we enter into prayer anytime we enter into God's presence. We do that in humility, knowing the only reason that we can do so is because of what Jesus did. And then, then we allow that knowledge to really sink in, to change us, to transform us in a powerful way that actually incentivizes us to stop sinning. It means we really are being made perfect being made holy by Christ's sacrifice. It means we not only receive God's forgiveness, but that our hearts are being changed to the point that we no longer even want to sin. Because we know that to do so would be tantamount to just crucifying Jesus all over again. It would be, show, it would be to show an utter disregard for the cost of our forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews actually gives a pretty strong warning in this regard. And it's a warning that I really think is supposed to make us a little uncomfortable. Hebrews 10, 26 to 29 says this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. I don't know about you, but that is a pretty sobering scripture if you ask me. I want to reiterate, right? This is good news, okay? The point here is not that we can't be forgiven for sins we commit after we become Christians. That is not what this is saying. Forgiveness is always, always available to those who repent, who confess their sins, and who trust 
in Christ's sacrifice for their forgiveness. The point here is that to continue to deliberately sin when you grasp what Christ has done for you, it implies that you really just don't care that much that he went to the cross to make your forgiveness possible. You just care about the forgiveness. And that implies a heart that has not truly been changed. See, but the reason this is good news is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, faith in Christ, belief in the necessity and the value of Christ's sacrifice, it does, it really and truly does change hearts. That's why the writer of Hebrews can make this kind of audacious statement by one sacrifice. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now hear that again and think about the tenses, the verb tenses going here. By one sacrifice, long ago, Jesus on the cross, he has made perfect forever, forever, now, he has made perfect forever those who are being, in the present moment, made holy. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever into the future those who right now are being made holy. Folks, we are the ones being made holy. We're the ones he has made perfect forever. We're, we're the ones being made worthy of the name, the people of God, the children of God, the family of God. So we need to give thanks. We just need to give thanks and praise for this gift of Jesus, our high priest, for the gift of his blood, for the forgiveness it has brought, and for this transformation of life, this transformation from the life we had into real life, life close to God, life in nearness to God, what the God calls eternal life, because that's what it brings. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.